when you're in relationships that cause a lot of stress, when there's push and pull, when there's things like love bombing, gaslighting, whatever it is that's happening in the relationship, you're getting used to the rise and fall of the cortisol in your body and you're associating that stress with the infatuation, the feelings of love and all of this. And so then when you have a healthy relationship, it feels very different because you're not getting that up and down of the stress. Hey there, lovely human. Welcome to That's Exciting, the podcast. You know, worse exciting is one word, exciting. <laughs> I'm your host, Yancy, a curious soul who loves to learn and dive into intimate, honest, and at times explicit conversations about intimacy, relationships, and sexuality. Today, my friends, we are talking about attachment theory. I discovered attachment theory back in 2021. Attachment theory basically is how we as individuals, as humans, relate to other people and also how we hold close, intimate connections. When I say close, intimate connection, it doesn't necessarily mean romantic. It can also be with family, with friends, etc. If I look back at 19 or 20 old Yancey, I was somewhat of a very anxious person, a very insecure and socially anxious person. That being said, if I had a romantic interest in someone, I would get kind of stressed out. I would make up stories in my head. And some of you can relate to this. I would think the person found somebody else. I would think the person lost interest. There was always the duality between am I too much or I'm not enough. And today, when I think back on those years, I just want to give myself a hug. And attachment theory has been that hug for myself. It has given me the permission to say what I'm going through is okay and to have vocabulary to understand just my behavior. And speaking of behaviors, today's guest is Lucille Shackleton. She's a behavioral scientist and a counselor who works with clients around the world and leads psychoeducation groups in Sydney, Australia. Lucille specializes in relationships and aims to support clients to understand the influence of attachment, social conditioning, and trauma on the way we relate to partners and behave in a relationship. Lucille works with clients to improve their relationship with themselves, their partners, and their families. Hey, Lucille. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's very good. It's very exciting. I, I think it's this is my first podcast. No, oh, first podcast. That's exciting. Speaking of exciting, I'm super happy to have you on to talk about attachment theory. But before we start and before we jump in the topic, the question I ask all my guests when we start the podcast, what are your sexual green flags? And since you practice in mental health and relationships as a counselor, I'm curious, what are some sexual green flags that you've heard? of in your practice. Some of you might be wondering what are sexual green flags? A little backstory on this, I decided to talk about sexual green flags because in our society we do put a lot of emphasis on red flags. Red flags in relationships, red flags in friendships, red flags in your family, red flags at work, pretty much in every spheres of our lives. And as it's important to talk about red flags, I believe it's as important to talk about the green ones. And as my friend Maya at Intimacy with Maya on Instagram says, let's invite more pleasure into our lives. And I will be referring to her Instagram post, which will be linked in the description of this episode. 
As Maya writes it in her post, sexual green flags are indicators that the sex you're about to have will be pleasurable, consensual, and safe. They can consist of mental, emotional, physical, or visual stimulation. For instance, a sexual green flag for you may be talking about your likes and dislikes. What do you want to try? What are your fantasies? In the act, it can sound like, is it the right spot? Do you want me to go harder? Do you want me to go slower? Do you like that? If we think about turn on triggers, which was created by Shen Booty, there are five categories. First is mental. If you're not connecting mentally first, physical is hardly an option. Second is desire. You want to be told directly that you're wanted after you have environmental. So you need, you know, a certain mood to be set, dimming the lights, having candles. It can also just mean being in a clean environment. Afterwards, we have cat and mouse. You like the flitting game, you know? You like the, the chase and be chased. The building, the tension, as Maya says. There is transactional. So for you, there needs to be something more than just physical to entice you. In essence, sexual green flags are different for everyone. And that's also why I ask, because I'm curious as to what turns people on since it's not really things that we talk about in society or that we've learned in sex ed, right? So yeah, back to the program. So it's a really interesting question because I kind of lump green flags together, whether they're sexual green flags or relationship green flags. And for me, green flags are all about communication, feeling safe, feeling supported. So when it comes to sexual green flags, I would really think about, you know, are you comfortable with that person? Are you both uh, able to communicate your wants, your needs? Are you comfortable being able to decline sex in a loving way and have them respect that? I think that's a really important thing because there can be a lot of pressure and expectation around sex. So when there is respect for one another, I would say that is a huge green flag, as well as being able to talk about sex because especially in long-term relationship, it's something that eventually, hopefully, you're going to be talking about. And if you're not talking about it, then that's a whole nother thing. Um, but being able to talk about it and being able to express yourself and your desires and things like that, I think are really big green flags. I love it. Communication is important in the act, before the act, after the act. Talk about sex, people. Just talk about sex. <laughs> yeah, it's not that, you know, people think of it as quite taboo and they don't want to talk about it, especially early on in relationship. But, you know, that's where you set the foundations. The beginning of the relationship, the dating, is where you kind of set your boundaries, you set set all those sorts of things. And, you know, if you're comfortable and you're having these conversations early, then it can be really helpful because it sets that up for later. So for people who are not familiar with what attachment theory is, can you please explain uh, the concept? Sure. So attachment theory, um, and I will just say there's a lot of different theories around relationships and psychological theories, but attachment theory is one of the probably the most popular and the most common that therapists um, use in you know understanding uh, relations between people. And so attachment theory is developed in the 60s by John Bowlby. He was a psychologist and a psychiatrist and a psychoanalyst and all of these sorts of things. <laughs> and essentially it talks about the lasting connection between uh, human beings. So that's how he kind of defined it initially. But what it really specifies is how when you're a child, the way that you relate to your caregiver and the way that they respond to your needs, then 
develop, then you develop an attachment style based on that relationship. And that can then filter and influence the relationships you have as an adult uh, later on in life. So there's, there's four different styles, which we'll talk about more, but essentially it's, it's the way that we relate to one another and the way that we get our needs met and the way people respond to our needs. This is very interesting. Could you elaborate on how this um, attachment style develops with children? Yeah, so you kind of, you develop based on your uh, relationship with your caregiver. So for example, when you're a child, you don't really have any way of getting your needs met. You're totally reliant upon a parent. So them actually responding to your needs is how you develop this attachment and it's whether they're reliable. So it's not just um, it's not just whether it's food being provided to you or, you know, a safe space. It's more about that emotional response. So, for example, if a baby is crying, it, is their parent responding to their emotional needs? So when a baby feels that their emotional needs are being responded to consistently and they can rely upon that caregiver to respond to those needs, they'll likely develop one particular style of attachment. If their needs are not responded to, and this could be for a a number of reasons, you know, a parent might have a lot of stuff going on themselves. They might have mental health that they're going through. They might have, you know, um, all sorts of other things, stress even. And for whatever reason, they are not able to emotionally respond uh, as they would like to to their child, then they might develop a different type of attachment. So it was tested, I think, in the 70s then. So Bowlby kind of created it. And then um, Mary Ainsworth, who was also a psychologist, uh, tested it out in the 70s. And what they did was they put children in a room and had their caregiver with them. And then they monitored them when the caregiver went away and came back and the response of the child. And what they found was, depending on that different attachment style, the baby would respond differently. So, you know, for one particular attachment style, they would become really distressed when the uh, caregiver would leave and then they would be really, uh, you know, happy when they returned or vice versa. It would really depend on the attachment of the child as to how they responded. So for, for some attachment styles, when the caregiver would come back, Um, I'm just saying caregiver because it could be either parent, it could be even a grandparent um, in in some situations because it's not necessarily dependent on the attachment being that mother figure. So in some cases, depending on the attachment, the baby would actually respond negatively and become really overwhelmed and cry. And and so there's, they were able to kind of monitor this and, and notice through the attachment what was kind of happening for that child. Very interesting. You've mentioned that they had different reaction. If we transpose it to attachment style as adults, what would be the different types of attachment styles? And can you give a rundown of what they are? Before we get into the theory, Lucille recommends a book called Your Brain on Love by Stan Tatkin. It is the neurobiology of healthy relationships. In the book, Tatkin refers to the attachment styles as anchor, island, and waves. Anchor refers to the secure attachment style. If you picture this, an anchor is typically secure, stable, and you can rely on it. Island refers to the avoidant attachment style. The island is independent and you can see them like in their alone time. Waves 
refers to the anxious attachment style. So you can see them coming and going. There's four different types of attachment. And actually, before I go into this, I will just say that there are a few things to consider when it comes to attachment. So majority of the research with attachment theory has been done in in Western societies that and, and Western societies are quite individualist in their nature and the way that they, you know, their family units. It's a, it can be a little bit different in cultures that are more communal um, and have, you know, bigger family structures. And so it's, it's important to, to think about the fact that culture does kind of play into this. So it's not necessarily the be all and end all. It can adjust according to cultures. With that in mind, secure attachment is the most common. It's around about 50%. People who are securely attached, as a child, they likely had good relationships in their family. So they had their emotional needs responded to and it was consistent. They likely had parents or caregivers even who, you know, family was important. They might have spent time together. They really responded to the emotional needs of the child well. When that happens, what we know is that children feel seen, children feel heard, children feel secure, and they build high self-esteem. When they're having these secure attachments as children, then as adults, they're kind of going about the whole dating game a little bit differently. When you have high self-esteem, you might be more willing to notice and respond to red flags early on and going to go, yeah, because they've got a good understanding of what they're looking for. They had healthy, um, connected relationships modeled to them. They know what it feels like to have their needs met. And they generally are pretty good at responding to other people's needs. So they're pretty good at, you know, being with people, but also being alone. Then we kind of move into the other types of attachment. We have secure. So I would imagine the next category would be insecure attachment styles. Yeah. So there's there's technically three. So then we've got avoidant and we've got anxious. So anxious is also called ambivalent depending on where you read about it. So avoidant attachment is... Um, as a child, it was likely that, uh, you know, if this is you, you probably spent a lot of time alone. So, you know, whatever was happening with your parents, they weren't necessarily able to respond to your emotional needs very well. And so you learnt to self-soothe. You learnt to auto-regulate. You might have become accustomed to kind of taking care of yourself. So as a result, when you become an adult, you might not be very expressive of emotion or be very comfortable with emotion or have a wide range of emotions. You might have, you know, not had really close relationships in your family where you felt really free to express yourself. So therefore, as a result, um, yeah, you kind of a bit of a self-sufficient person. And so what happens in relationship then for someone who is avoidant is they'll likely be very big on kind of we each take care of ourselves. Someone who they perceive to be quite needy might be very overwhelming for them. So it's very you do you, I'll do me, we'll come together. They might think of themselves as really low maintenance. Not necessarily true because, you know, every relationship and every person is high maintenance in their own way and that's not a bad thing, that's the whole you know, that's relationship. <laughs> but uh, they might think of themselves as kind of low needs. So in order for them to regulate their emotions and, you know, calm down if they're feeling overwhelmed, they need to remove themselves and self-soothe. So they might become really um, tired from 
you know, going out and spending time with people. So they're getting their energy from like time alone rather than going out and spending time with people. They're regulating by themselves. The ambivalent style or the wave is different to the island or the avoidant because they likely when they're a child, they did have at least one caregiver who was connected to them and responded to their needs, but it wasn't consistent. So what probably happened was maybe they were preoccupied with something going on in their own lives. There might have been mental health. There might have been, you know, something happening for them that they weren't able to consistently respond. So therefore, they became anxious because they weren't sure when their needs were going to be met. So, you know, sometimes they would go for love and comfort to their caregiver and they would really receive that. And then other times they might be rebuffed. And so it was that kind of inconsistency of I'm not sure what's going to happen that then leads them to develop this emotional attachment. So it could be that that parent was preoccupied with themselves in some sort of way. So maybe they were dealing with stuff and, you know, um, that's important to keep in mind, you know, as children, we don't really know that they're dealing with stuff, you know, they're people, they're adults, you know, as adults now we can reflect back and go, wow, they had a lot of stuff going on. So yeah, it's not about that blame. It's not about judgment. It's about noticing. And I think this is what can be really powerful in attachment. Understanding your attachment is more about helping you to then look at your own patterns and your own behaviors to help you improve your relationships and the way you relate. I never think about it as necessarily anything to do with parents at this stage, because once we're adults, it's up to us really to decide how we navigate that, what we do with it, because we can't change, you know, the the past. So it's about looking forward to the future and how we're going to navigate the relational patterns that we have. So the last one is, uh, it's called disorganized or fearful avoidant. And so this is probably only about 5% of the population. And that's, I don't actually really talk about it very often. Um, but you know, for the sake of covering all of attachment, it is good to get into it because it might resonate with, with some of the listeners. So disorganized attachment is really when there's been some sort of trauma or potentially abuse um, in childhood where the, you know, I guess the fearful avoidant kind of says it, where there is fear. So for that child, what can be really challenging is if you have a caregiver that is your source of care, is your source of you know, being safe and secure in the world, but they're also a source of fear, it can become really confusing. So what that might look like is as an adult, they might want intimacy, but then be terrified of it at the same time. They might want to get into a relationship, but that relationship might have really extremes ups and downs where you love your partner one moment and you hate them the next. It's that that real extreme um, response and dynamic in the relationship. There might also be substance abuse issues that come up or mental health. I wasn't aware that it was only 5%. I yeah. thought there, were, there would be more people that have the uh, the the fearful avoidant attachment style. Yeah, so it's about it's about 50% secure. 25 avoidant. 20, I believe, is anxious or ambivalent, and then about five is disorganized or fearful avoidant. Yeah, so it doesn't quite add up exactly, but yeah, that's the kind of estimate. What would be the fear associated with the anxious attachment styles? 
I guess, you know, for disorganized attachment, um, you're probably looking at the fear of being hurt. You, you're looking at um, there was there was obviously um, something that was happening in their childhood where, you know, um, care and fear got confused and they were having to experience both from that same person, which would be so very challenging. Whereas for someone who is anxious, it might be fear of rejection or fear of abandonment. So it can vary. There, there can be fears that are similar uh, across the styles, uh, but they're not necessarily the same. So for anxious, it would be fear of rejection and fear of abandonment. And what would it be for uh, avoidant? There would definitely be a fear of um, abandonment for avoidant as well. Um, the fears um, might be somewhat similar in some cases, but um, the behaviours would be different. So, for example, for someone who is avoidant, they might fear abandonment, so therefore they push people away and don't allow people close to them. Uh, and then for someone who is anxious, they might um, have a fear of rejection or abandonment as well, but what they might do is they might uh, be more intense in the relationship to try and solidify it to stop the um, potential abandonment or rejection. So they'll go about it differently. It does make a lot of sense. And what are some limiting belief that people with insecure attachment styles would have when dating and how do they perpetuate them? It's interesting because when I think about limiting beliefs, um, you know, it can be so much broader than just attachment. So for example, someone who has secure attachment would generally have uh, good levels of self-esteem. So that will then influence how they date and how they are in relationship. Whereas someone with avoidant or anxious attachment might have lower self-esteem. So they might go through the dating process in a completely different way. They might accept behaviors that someone for for example, that had secure attachment, might not. It's also got to do with our family rules. So when we're growing up, we we get taught about family rules and we see relationships and behaviours modelled by our parents and caregivers. You know, if you saw relationships modelled to you that, you know, were not connected, that didn't communicate, then, you know, this is what you're seeing, this is what you're learning. So we all have family rules. We have these kind of unspoken expectations and beliefs that are placed upon us in families, like a, a really easy one for most people to relate to. You eat what's on your plate. You have to eat what's on your plate because if you don't eat what's on your plate, you know, there's there's that old saying, well, there's people that are hungry and it's selfish of you for not to eat what is on your plate. So then that family rule becomes instilled and then there are adults that for their whole lives cannot leave food on their plate because of the guilt and the belief around what that means. So it's similar with meta emotions. So for example, we have feelings about our feelings and we, we develop beliefs and feelings about feelings, which then influences which feelings we feel comfortable expressing. A good example is, you know, some households when you're growing up, sadness is not okay. You know, it's, you know, we, there's, we don't talk about this, these kind of family rules, but then maybe expressing anger was more accepted or tolerated. So then that young person is learning, okay, I can't express anger. It's not okay to express anger. Maybe in my family that signified whatever it may be. Maybe that signified weakness. Maybe that signified something else. So then they're internalizing that belief. So then their go-to, if they're feeling sad, is they might just cover it up with anger. 
So the way that we actually feel about emotions and beliefs influences how we relate to people and how we engage in relationship and the sorts of behaviors that we engage with and how we communicate because you know some people you're growing up in a if you're growing up in a family where communication is not really something that happens how are you learning that that's a lot of unpacking to do with yourself with your therapist it's it's a lot of unpacking and this is the thing so you know i always think with with limiting beliefs you know there's such a big focus on switching your kind of negative beliefs or thoughts to positive and that's all well and good but that can be really hard <laughs> to just go from one to the other so i always talk about challenging them so when it comes to family rules or it comes to the way you feel about particular emotions or limiting beliefs whatever it is rather than going i need to switch a negative to a positive or i need to switch you know unhelpful to helpful or unproductive to productive i always just say to people challenge it if you can just challenge the thought you don't have to switch it to positive. So for someone with low self-esteem, I thought that might come up for them. A limiting belief might be, you know, this person I've been on a date with doesn't call me. I'm not good enough. They didn't like me. Just challenging it with something simple like, could they just be busy? Yeah, they could just be busy. Or being so focused on, will they like me? Challenging it, can I just focus on whether I like them? Yeah, I'm just going to try that. This really does take pressure off of trying to switch the non-productive into a productive. Because oftentimes what I see is whenever you try to do the gap, in the middle comes bashing yourself on the head because, oh no, I've done it again. And it's so difficult. It takes a lot of work. So challenging it is a great approach that I really appreciate. On that note, my words didn't really do justice to what I was trying to say. When you're trying to change a negative into a positive or an unproductive into a productive, as Lucille mentions, there can be a lot of pressure. If I think about my own experience, the pressure stems from minding the gap. Some of you might relate to this, but personally, it's an additional challenge when I'm trying to mind that gap. And by that, I mean like if I slip up, I'm most likely to be very self-critical and to lack self-compassion. So I really love the approach of challenging the thought, you know, as it doesn't emphasizes that much on morals and on right or wrong. And just on that, you know, I think it's really important to whenever you're doing any kind of internal work on yourself or trying to make changes in your life, you know, if you're trying to go from here to here, you're not just going to go from here to here. You're going to go from here to here to here to here to here to here. You, you know, change is a process. And so any step that you're taking, if you're falling off and getting back up, that's okay. You're not starting from the starting point. You know, every time you're making an attempt, you're getting that little bit closer. So I think it's really important to, um, you know, be really compassionate to ourselves when we're trying to work on this stuff because it's hard. It can be so uncomfortable because, you know, this is why a lot of people may never look at this stuff because it's so uncomfortable. It's easier to stay where you are and do what you're doing a lot of the time than really look at making change. For some people, they're just not going to want to do it. And that's okay. Each to their own. I really think that's important. You know, at the moment, there's such a big focus on mental health, which is wonderful, but there's also a lot of pressure 
There's a lot of pressure. So just allowing people to be where they are and work on, you know, things in their own time is really important. If we talk about representation in the media, why is the anxious and avoidant dynamics so represented in the media? And that's in movies, TV shows. My first thought is because it makes good TV when it's dramatic. I don't know. The the challenge is that we often see extremes in the media. So whether it's anxious and um, avoidant or whatever it may be, this is another thing to think about, right? So if you identify with any of these styles of attachment, just know that there are different levels. You might identify with some elements of avoidant, but then in some relationships feel like you're anxious because different relationships can bring out different sides to our personality. You might feel like you're avoidant, but then also think your partner's avoidant too, and they're more avoidant than you because there's also levels, right? So they tend to, I think, get the most extreme versions of anything and put it on telly because it makes it good it makes it engaging. Entertaining. Entertaining, yeah. Engaging, entertaining, yeah. Yeah, it keeps you interested. Because if you think about it, if there was a TV show on really healthy, connected, intimate relationships, it might be pretty boring. I've heard this saying from a friend that healthy relationships sucks because they're boring. Well, and so this is a really interesting point. So when you're in relationships that cause a lot of stress, when there's push and pull, when there's things like love bombing, gaslighting, whatever it is that's happening in the relationship, you're getting used to the rise and fall of the cortisol in your body and you're associating that stress with the infatuation, the feelings of love and all of this. And so then when you have a healthy relationship, it feels very different because you're not getting that up and down of the stress. Sometimes when you're shifting your patterns, you really have to make sure you check in with yourself and be like, okay, this feels different and maybe it's not boring, maybe it's safe. You know, or you've, you've not got that stress in the back of your mind. You're comfortable, you're secure. And sometimes safe can feel boring if you're used to chaos. Can two different attachment styles be happy and be in a healthy relationship? Absolutely. So there's been a fair bit of research done about who kind of ends up uh, attracting who in relationship and stuff like that. And it has to do with, um, so there's a, there's a psychological theory that's the familiarity principle. And it talks kind of about how we tend to be more attracted to people that are familiar to us. So the more time we spend with someone, the more familiar that they become to us and behaviors and things like that, the more attracted we tend to be. And that I think speaks to people's patterns in relationships relationship as well. It's about, I think, knowing each other and having that communication. So if you're able to communicate, this is what's happening for me. This is what I need. That's a great start because, you know, so much of challenges and issues in relationship come from people trying to mind read each other. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a psychic. Not either. So (laughs) I don't try and do that. Because it never ends well. It never ends well. It never. <laughs> or if you're someone that says, I'm going to change that person at the start of a relationship. Oh, like, yes. It's not yes. a great start. Well, no, no. And I think that's a really good point, right? So if you're dating and you're getting into a relationship with someone that in order for you to be happy, they need to change. I mean, that's a red flag because we y- you can't change people. People can change themselves but it comes from them. It's hard mm. to swallow. It's a hard pill oh. to swallow, but once yeah. you swallow it, so everything comes so much more easy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Like, okay, well, fine. That's that's your stuff. This is my stuff. I'm going to work on right. me. You can work on you. Can an insecure attachment become secure? And if so, how? Because I know a lot of people want to have the answer to that question. Yeah, so there's there's been a fair bit of research done on this. And I guess the answer is um, yes. So I guess what it looks like is time, you know, doing the work on yourself and in the relationship. So if, for example you are anxiously attached and you're in a relationship, it, it does take time. But what you, you might find is as you become more secure in the relationship, you know, you have that communication, you build the foundations of trust, you go through this process, then over time, you can shift that dynamic. You absolutely can change your attachment style through relationship and through building healthy, connected, safe, intimate relationships that you each respond to each other's emotional needs. It just takes time. Getting to know people takes time and building trust takes time and building that sense that you can really truly rely on another person, which in, in essence is a really important part of that whole attachment, right? Because it's relying on that that caregiver. It takes time. I think that's the variable that people want to accelerate a lot the time part. It's really hard. And I think there's such a pressure in our society to have certain things at a certain time and to tick boxes. And time is such a big pressure. I'm supposed to be married with a husband, mm. with a dog in my house at 25. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because I was thinking to myself about, you know, when I was, you know, 10 years old, what, where did I think I would be at my age? And it was, it was very different. <laughs> than what it is today very different yeah but like my whole life is different you know and it's it's interesting because I remember you know when I was in high school I thought someone in their 30s I was like oh that's that's really old and now I'm in my 30s I'm like oh I feel so young <laughs> <laughs> yeah time is just an unnecessary pressure that we we place upon ourselves to achieve certain things because we the the thing is that we don't have control over a lot of these things like you know we place these pressures on upon ourselves oh, I need to have a baby by a certain age well, we don't really have much control over that like you can influence it you can you can date and you can attempt to meet someone but you know if you do meet someone you don't really have full control of, over whether you actually meet someone that you really like at what time and you can have sex and try and get pregnant and you can use IVF and you can do all these things, but you still can't control whether it happens. So you can influence it, but you can't control a lot of these things that we're placing, you know, these expectations upon ourselves and saying, I will be happy or I will have achieved something or I will be worthy or I will be whatever it is I think I will be once I achieve these things. The things that we're talking about are often out of our control. So it makes it really hard. Would you have any um, advices or tips for people that try to control the things they can't control, especially in their dating life? I think it's just about recognizing the things that you, you can and can't control. Just noticing is really important. So if you know that you cannot control it, don't get angry at yourself for not having done it. You know, be kind to yourself. No one benefits from people beating themselves up about not having done things that they can't control. Life is 
very unexpected at times. For people who would like to have more information on attachment theory, is there any books or um, platforms that you'd recommend to grasp information on the matter? Absolutely. So um, there is a book called Attached by, I think it's Amir Levine and Rachel Heller, and that gives you a really good overview. So that's where um, a lot of the stats have come from that I've, I've said today. And then there's also uh, a couple of books by Stan Tatkin. Now, um, I, I, I spoke about him before, and I think his books have a really good, easy to understand um, way of describing attachment theory and the associated behaviors and feelings and how it shows up in relationship. And then it also gives you what I really like about his books is it gives you an idea of for each of the attachment styles and depending on what a potential partner is, how you can respond to the potential challenges that will come up in order to develop that secure relationship together. So it's a really helpful guide to go, okay, this is what I'm connecting with uh, and this is what we can work on. The other thing is he's got he's got wide for love, but he's also got wide for dating. So there's an option whether you're single or in relationship. So wide for dating actually focuses on the debt like how you can incorporate this information and these tools into the dating process. I personally love attachment theory. I found it to be hugely valuable in my own life and in my own relationships. I think that it can be really helpful to learn more about yourself and why you do the things that you do, um, especially if you're a parent. This isn't about guilt. This isn't about blame. This is just about understanding yourself better and how you relate to other people better and then being able to take control over the things that, you know, you'd like to shift or change and be able to improve those in a way that will help your relationships. In saying that, it's important to remember that it's not a one-size-fits-all approach. There's going to be multiple variables. You might read multiple styles and think, oh, I'm a little bit this and I'm a little bit this. And yeah, you might be because different different styles might come out in different relationships depending on what style that other person is. So I think like anything you know take what you can get from it that's going to help you leave what doesn't what's unhelpful unproductive for you and just yeah if you can benefit out of learning more about yourself and how you relate to others through the through attachment theory and how to shift potentially unhelpful dynamics that may be present then great any tools that help i think why not give them a go that's it for today's episode. If you want to know more about Lucille, follow her on Instagram at Centered Self Therapy. I'll be sure to put the link in the description and also on her website at www.centeredselftherapy.com. She's also launching her podcast called Relationship Realities, where she'll have uncensored conversations about ups and downs of relationship. Today's episode was brought to you by your kindness. You know why? Because you will rate this podcast five stars. Okay. <laughs> On a serious note, rating the podcast five star will be my birthday gift in advance. And that's really going to help me bring my content to the next level. And most importantly, keep those conversations going, which is what we want. This is going to be my birthday gift in advance. So please, if you could go on wherever you listen to your podcast and rate my podcast five stars, I will be forever grateful.
Before we leave, on production team, recording, editing, and sound design by yours truly, myself, Yancy. Special thanks to Jane P for her assistance on production. The official That's Exciting Anthem by Calder Nash. The amazing vocals on the track by Mel Pacifico. Some instrumentals and loops you hear throughout the episodes from Jude, aka Jude Experience. That's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Yancy, and until next week, stay curious, because that's exciting. So exciting. That's exciting. Oh. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah.